Hi everybody, I trust that you are well. Thank you for tuning in again this morning. It's been quite a week. It's a hundred days since we started lockdown. Things are happening in our country, all over the world. And perhaps before we look into God's word this morning, we could just bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. We thank you that you haven't left us alone in this world, but that you've given us your word to teach us, encourage us, correct us, train us in righteousness. We ask, please, that as we look into your word this morning, that you would come and speak very deeply and very personally to each one of us, wherever we find ourselves. We thank you that you are able to do more than we could ever ask or imagine and we commit ourselves and our time into your hands. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're continuing with our sermon series through the book of First Peter, After Suffering Glory. And we come again today to First Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 to 10. Last week we had a look at the theme of Christ our Cornerstone, which really occurs in the middle of these verses, verses 6 to 8. And this morning we're going to concentrate on what Peter has to say about us as God's people. And so to make that particularly clear, let me read verses 4 and 5 and then verses 9 and 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by people but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. I think again it may be helpful if I give just a brief background to these verses, because Peter, as a Jewish man, is steeped in the Old Testament and uses a number of different phrases and concepts from his Old Testament background. So if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, some of you are thinking, please don't go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Don't worry, I'll be brief. But in the book of Genesis, we read how God comes to Abraham and says to him, I'm going to make you into a great nation that will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. By the end of the book of Genesis, we see God's promise come true. We see the formation of a people group, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was called Israel, the Israelites. They have become a nation. But there's a problem. This little nation is hardly born, and already they are in trouble. They are slaves in Egypt, and there is nothing they can do to escape. And so in the book of Exodus, we read how God saves his people out of Egypt. There is nothing they can do to save themselves, but God steps in and he saves them 
through a series of miracles which devastate Egypt but rescue Israel. And God brings his people to Mount Sinai and he says to them, Now that I've rescued you, here are my laws to govern my relationship with you. Notice the pattern here. God saves his people first and then he gives them his commands. The commandments don't save Israel. God saves them. And then out of gratitude and because God's commandments are there for their own good, Israel chooses to obey him. God says this, though, to his people at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, although the entire nation of Israel is described as being priests, there was a particular group of people in Israel who were literally priests. They were holy, set apart for God's particular use. Just like the shovel next to the altar at the tabernacle was holy, in that it was used to remove the ash from the sacrifices and nothing else, so the priests were holy, in that they served God at the tabernacle, later at the temple, and didn't have a part-time job doing something else, somewhere else. They were separated for God's use. The temple was a place where God met especially with the Israelites. There was an outer court where the Gentiles, those who wanted to worship Israel's God, could come, but then there was an inner courtyard outside the temple that only Jewish people could enter to worship God and make vows and offer sacrifices. Only the priests could enter the temple building itself, and only the high priest could enter the most holy place of the temple, and only once a year. Israel was meant to be God's special people, holy, separate from all other nations, and they were also meant to be a witness to all the other nations to show what it meant to be God's particular people. But as you read through the rest of the history of Israel, you'll see how over time the Israelites turned away from God and forgot their high calling. They turned aside to immorality and idolatry, so much so that eventually God says this through the prophet Hosea, You are not my people and I am not your God. But even though God was angry at his people and punished them and sent them into exile, God looked forward to a marvellous restoration. In Hosea chapter 2 we read, In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will plant Israel for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people, and they will say, You are my God. Near the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, we read, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. In fact, Isaiah sees all the nations of the earth coming to Israel's God. Chapter 19. In that day, the Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, 
Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. And now in this passage, we see how Peter's readers and we ourselves are amazingly a fulfillment of that ancient prophecy. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So with that background in mind, let's have a look at what Peter tells us about ourselves in this passage. And we'll do so under two main headings, because in these verses, Peter tells us about our status and our service, or who we are and what we have been called to. Firstly, then, our status, who we are. Peter uses a number of different expressions to describe us in these verses, and we'll look at them one at a time and look at some of the implications of what he says. The first picture that Peter gives us is that of a temple. Peter begins in verse 4 by saying, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by people but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Jesus is a living stone because of his resurrection, and those of us who believe in him share his resurrection life, and so we are living stones. You might have thought that Peter would say that as we draw near to Jesus, we become more like him. We are sanctified. We are changed from glory to glory. But he doesn't say that. He says that as we draw near to Jesus, we together are being built into a spiritual house. In other words, Peter doesn't address what happens to us as individuals. His focus, rather, is on what happens to us corporately. When you read through these verses, you discover that the pronouns are plural. When Peter says you in these verses, he means all of you or as some Americans put it, ye all. Peter thinks of the spiritual temple not as the body of the individual believer, but as the body of believers, the whole company of those who are joined to Christ. And this has a very important implication for us. You and I are designed for community. Originally in my notes I wrote, you cannot be a Christian by yourself, which may be a little misleading. Becoming a Christian is an individual act. I acknowledge Jesus died for my sin and I give my life back to him. I can't do that for others and they can't do it for me. But you were never designed to live as a Christian by yourself. God hasn't called us into an exclusive relationship with himself. He calls us into community. And probably for the first time in our lives, we are understanding and experiencing that personally. At the moment, we have this inexplicable longing to be with one another. We know that we can listen to sermons on our own and read the Bible on our own and pray on our own and even sing on our own. But we don't want to be alone. We want to be with one another. That is God's Holy Spirit within us, drawing us as living stones together into his spiritual house. And it's our frustration that we can't be together. 
If you've ever watched the movie Big Hero 6 with your children or grandchildren, we're like those little microbots that have this magnetic attraction to be together with all the other microbots, and we'll move across land and sea to be together. I remember several years ago, there was a daily devotional book called Jesus and Me. Nothing wrong with daily devotions. In fact, they're very important. But the title was a little unfortunate. The Christian life is not Jesus and me, but rather Jesus and us. As individual Christians on our own, we don't have everything that we need. No one Christian has all of the gifts A little bit later, Peter describes this when he says, Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons that we're missing each other at the moment, because we're missing the mutual ministry that our gathered times together give us. There's another important implication here, too. In the Old Testament, the temple was a physical structure. But in the New Testament, the temple, the church, is not a physical structure, but rather is made up of believers. The Apostle Paul uses the same imagery in Ephesians chapter 2 where he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Remember the profile picture on our classic WhatsApp group. It's a picture of some old church doors and they are closed. And the caption reads, Doors closed? Church open. The Pinelands Baptist Church is not located on the corner of La Gratitude and the Provence Roads in Pinelands. The Pinelands Baptist Church is a spiritual house made up of individual believers joined together. The building is just where we happen to meet, or rather not meet, at the moment. And that's important to bear in mind as we consider what being the church may look like in the future. It may be many months before we can go back to the church services that we once had, but that doesn't mean it's all over. Of course, we'll be sad that things aren't what they used to be. We've experienced a loss and that causes sadness. But this may be a great opportunity for us to consider our priorities and reimagine and reinvent new ways of ministering to one another and reaching out to others. I can imagine a period where we meet in small groups, hopefully in homes when the regulations change, and we pray together and worship together and study the Bible together, and there's time and space for everyone in the group to participate. And because it's in someone's home and it involves coffee and cake, it's easy to invite your non-Christian neighbours to join in. God is giving us a great opportunity here to rethink and reset 
and reimagine, to think about the things that are essential and the things that are peripheral. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus said, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. We together are the temple of God. Secondly, Peter describes us as a chosen people in verse 9. You are a chosen people. Remember, we looked at this a few weeks back. We are not God's choice people, but we are his chosen people. Nothing special about us, but everything special about God and his choosing of us. Exodus 19, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, even though I own the whole world, you are my treasured possession. I have galaxies, I have worlds, but none of them mean anything to me like you do. Are you aware of the fact that you are loved like that? That was really encouraging to Peter's first readers who were being ridiculed and persecuted for their faith. And it's encouraging and comforting for us when we are misunderstood or mocked or belittled for our Christian faith. It doesn't matter what other people say about me. It doesn't matter what label people put on me. God says that I am his precious possession. The God of the universe has his eye on me. Thirdly, Peter describes us as a royal priesthood. In verse 5, Peter mixes his metaphors a bit. He says, you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And in verse 9, he calls us a royal priesthood. We form part of the Baptist Church, and our church belongs to the Baptist Union of Southern Africa. Baptists are probably best known for their understanding of baptism. We practice believers' baptism, not just adults, but those who are old enough to believe for themselves. However, Baptists actually have seven principles or distinctives. You can have a look at them for yourself in our Statement of Belief. Number six, though, reads like this. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, by which we understand that each Christian has direct access to God through Christ our High Priest and shares with him in his work. This includes administering the ordinances of baptism and communion, as well as in intercession, worship, faithful service, and bearing witness to Jesus Christ even to the ends of the earth. It's a very precious principle, and it comes to us from Peter's words here. I don't need a priest or a minister or a bishop to approach God on my behalf. I have direct access to God through Jesus. And because of that, I am to be holy. Remember, to be holy means to be set apart, set apart for a particular use. The best example that I can think of of something being holy is your toothbrush. Your toothbrush is set aside for the particular task of brushing your teeth and no one else's. 
including the family dogs. You and I, as God's royal priesthood, are not to be used for any old thing. We're intended for God's particular use. Fourthly, Peter describes us as a holy nation. Verse 9, you are a holy nation. As we've seen, Peter's readers were the fulfilment of God's promise to bring all the nations of the world to himself to create one new people. The early Christians saw themselves as a new race, and they were criticised and persecuted for that. The Roman writer Suetonius, who lived in 90 AD, refers to Christians as a separate class. He wrote, Punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class, genus, of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. Christians lived by an entirely new set of rules. They did away with all of the class distinctions that existed in the ancient world of that time. We read about this in Colossians chapter 3, for example, where Paul says, Here, among God's chosen people, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And because of that, opponents to Christianity saw Christians as haters of mankind. They felt that they were antisocial because they wouldn't go to the theatre to watch the lewd plays or to the races or the gladiatorial combats. It was felt that Christians broke home and family ties, ruined businesses, abandoned pagan religious rituals, avoided civic duties. And all of this led to persecution. Peter reflects that in chapter 4 where he says, They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Christians were an entirely different people, a new race, a new nation, and because of this they were hated. And yet, paradoxically, it was this very characteristic that eventually overcame the world. In time, this new race won over the masses and changed the history of the world. Folk, in our own day, we have to see our primary identity as being part of God's special nation, as Christ followers. I am a Christian first, before I am white, or coloured, or black. And that means that there is no place whatsoever for racism in the Christian church. It cannot exist if we truly see ourselves as an entirely new nation, the people of God. We don't have time today to look at all of the practical implications of this, but just to say we need to search our hearts in this regard. Do we have prejudices and attitudes that we're not even aware of? We need to read some of the articles and books that are coming out at the moment on this subject. We need to have the courage to have difficult conversations with people of different cultures within our church. Let's use some of the tools that our Mercy and Justice team have prepared for us. Let's make sure that we love everyone in our church equally. As Peter tells us in the verses just before this, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers and sisters, love one another deeply 
from the heart. We are God's holy nation. Fifthly, Peter describes us as the people of God. Verse 9, a people belonging to God. And verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the Old Testament, God created the people of Israel and he redeemed them. And the same pattern is true of us as God's new people, even as individual believers. I'm sure you've heard the story of the little boy who loved ships and sailing, and so he built himself a model yacht. He took months to build it. He went out and bought just the right piece of wood and carefully carved the hull. He bought material, and his mom showed him how to cut and stitch the sails. He painted it green and white, even made little portholes and a small rudder. For months, all that he could think about was how beautiful his little boat was. Finally, he finished it, and he took it out to a nearby lake, and he let it go out on its reel of gut, and it sailed beautifully. He spent the rest of that afternoon sailing his boat on the lake. But just before it was time for him to go home, the wind built up, and he tried to reel the boat back in, but just before he could get it safely to shore, the gut snapped, and the little boy watched as his yacht sailed further and further away. He spent the last of the daylight trying to look for the boat around the lake, but he couldn't find it. It was getting dark, and so sadly, the little boy had to go home. A few weeks later, the boy was walking past a second-hand shop, and in the window, for sale, for 200 rand, was his green and white boat, a little bit shabby, but definitely his boat. And he went in and told the shopkeeper his story. But the shopkeeper said that, unfortunately, he would still have to buy the boat because he himself had paid the person who'd given him the boat. And for the rest of the summer, this little boy cleaned cars and cut people's grass and helped with the dishes until eventually he had the 200 rand to pay the shopkeeper and he bought his boat back. And as this young boy was walking out of the shop, he was overheard speaking to his boat and he said this, Little boat, you are twice mine. I made you and I bought you. You are twice mine. That is God's message to us in these verses today. God says you are twice mine. I made you. I am your creator and I bought you back. I redeemed you, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of my son. You are mine. So that is our status as Christians, who we are, a temple in which God lives through his Holy Spirit, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. But secondly, let's look at our service. What is our response to all that God declares us to be? Well, first of all, it's praise verse 9, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. C.S. Lewis, the Cambridge scholar and former atheist, said that for many years he struggled with this idea of human beings praising God. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he says this, 
We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence or delightfulness. The Psalms then were especially troublesome to me, particularly the statement put into God's own mouth, whoever offers me thanks and praise honours me. It was hideously like saying, what I most want is to be told that I am good and great. But Lewis began to think about how praise and glory worked in other ways. He went on to say this, What do we mean when we say that a picture is admirable? We certainly don't mean that it's admired, for bad work is admired by thousands and good work may be ignored. Nor that it deserves admiration, in the sense in which a candidate deserves a high mark for, from the examiners. The sense in which the picture deserves or demands admiration is rather this, that admiration is the correct, adequate or appropriate response to it, and that if we do not admire, we shall be stupid, insensible and great losers. We shall have missed something. God is that object to admire, which is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world. Not to appreciate him is to have lost the greatest experience, and in the end, to have lost all. And then he points out this, just as people spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all people do when they speak of what they care about. And so we thank God for who he is and what he has done. And most of all, we thank him for his salvation. Verses 9 and 10 again. He has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So in this week ahead, spend time thanking and praising God. Listen to some good Christian music. Go for a walk. Remember what life was like before you knew Jesus. Write a thank you list of all the things that he has done for you. We offer him praise. But praise isn't just singing or speaking or thanking. Look at the second service that Peter says we are to perform. It is that of sacrifice. Verse 5. A holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, there were different kinds of sacrifices there were sacrifices offered to the Lord so that sin could be removed, and there were sacrifices offered in thanksgiving because sin had been removed. Jesus put an end to the sin offerings by his death for us on the cross, but now the whole church of God responds by a continual thank offering, offering spiritual sacrifices. Peter doesn't tell us what these sacrifices are specifically, but we can infer this from the rest of the New Testament. Romans chapter 12, for example. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. 
this is your spiritual act of worship. Or Hebrews chapter 13, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. The whole of my life is the offering up of a sacrifice. Spiritual sacrifices are the transformed lives of believers, which are offered as sacrifices to the glory of God. Notice again the pattern. God has called us and saved us, and now out of gratitude we offer our lives back to him. There was a structure built 130 years ago, which was part of an international exhibition. And when it was first constructed, the citizens of the city were appalled. They described it as monstrous and useless, and they demanded that it be torn down as soon as the exhibition was over. But from the moment its architect first conceived it, he took great pride in it and loyally defended it from those who wished to destroy it. He knew that it was destined for greatness. You can still see the structure today in Paris, France. Alexander Gustav Eiffel's famous Eiffel Tower. In the same way, people looked at Christians in Peter's time and ridiculed them and hated them and wished to rid the earth of them. The same is increasingly true in our own world today. And yet the Church of Jesus Christ, which he founded and purchased with his own blood, continues, ridiculed by the world, and yet a holy temple in which Jesus lives by his Holy Spirit, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, declaring the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light and offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let's continue then to be all that God has called us to be as his church. God bless you.